Father God, we owe every single thing to you. The breath that we breathe, the food that we eat, the friends that we have, the family that we have, the church that we have. And Father, we owe our eternity to you. Father, we cannot take one bit of credit for being right with you. It's not our righteousness. It's not our goodness. It's not our money. It's not our intellect. It's not our charisma. Father, we, we have no credit. We are your people saved by grace alone through faith alone. It's all Jesus. And now, Father, as we approach your word, we understand that we can't take any credit for understanding your word, but Father, as your word tells us, it is your gracious Holy Spirit that opens our eyes. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit steps in where I am weak to present your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit in believers opens our eyes to see Jesus in a new way. And Father, if there are non-believers among us, Father, we ask that you open their heart to see the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. All right, my friends. We are working our way through the book of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. If you have your Bibles with you, we'd encourage you to open them up. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one in the, underneath the chair in front of you. We would love for you to open that blue Bible up with us. If you're in that blue Bible, we are on page 849, 849. Um, God's Word is so precious to us. That's how God works. He works through His Word. The Bible says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, the Word of God. The Word of God grows our faith. So we'd encourage you to, to open that Bible up. If you need a Bible, take that blue one home with you. We'd love, we love giving those away. Take that one home with you. If you know someone who needs a Bible, take that blue one home. Give it to them. We'd love to be part of that. Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Now, last week, we talked about Mark 13 uh, being one of the most complex chapters in all the New Testament. It's complex. We get into things like the end times. Everybody go like this. Ooh, ooh, end times, yeah. And I heard just this week from somebody, don't you think, pastor, that we're in the end times right now? What do we say to that? I don't know. Jesus tells us in Mark 13, we don't know, but we do know that he is in control. Isn't that good news? Now, I know everybody, I'm getting everybody excited to start talking about end times. We're not going to be there quite yet. Okay, we're not going to be there quite yet. We're going to have to have to talk about the temple. That's what the chap that's that's what kicks off this this complex and exciting chapter. The temple. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, couple of months, we've been in the temple. And you might be saying like me when we've worked through these two chapters and we've been talking temple temple temple, what's the big deal about the temple? I'm tired of hearing about the temple. Why is the temple, and Jesus says it's going to be destroyed, and everything kind of stops? And we hear that in the New Testament, and the New Testament audience go, what are you talking about? I can't believe it. And it's such a big deal that Jesus catapults us into the end times, and he starts with the destruction of the temple. As if this is a huge deal, and I'm going to talk about an even bigger deal. So what's the big deal about the destruction of the temple? Buildings get destroyed every day. Why is this one being destroyed a big deal? Rome destroyed temples and cities all the time. Why is Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem such a big deal? So let's read this together. Mark chapter 13. We're going to read two verses. Two verses. Let's read this together. Big number 13 goes like this. And as he came out of the temple, 
one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's it. That's all today. Two verses. You kind of get a sense, or at least I do, that this disciple had heard all the things that Jesus had been saying in the temple. Don't forget, he came into the temple and was not to his liking. What was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations ended up being a place of racism. Jews can get close to God. Everybody else, you got to stay in the outer courts. And the outer courts were not some nice church, quiet place to reflect and worship the creator of the universe. No, the outer courts is where they put the animals being sold, where they put the marketplace. No place for worship. So Jesus saw what was to be light to the nations to say, come, worship the God who saves sinners. Instead of finding that, he found a bazaar, a marketplace, and he takes a whip out of cords and he wipes everybody out of the temple. We saw Jesus come, and, and he, he goes up to all the bigwigs in the temple, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, all these guys who run the place came to debate Jesus, and he knocked them all out. And so one of the disciples hearing this, hearing that Jesus is not a fan of the temple, perhaps he's trying to end the place that was the center of his world, this disciple. The center of his world was the temple. He remembered coming here as a kid every single year and, and sacrificing for this first sins every single year for that. He said, do you really feel this way about the temple? So he comes out and he says, Jesus, look at these huge, beautiful stones. Surely doesn't that do something for you, Jesus? Perhaps the people is saying, Jesus, how great are we as Jews? Look at this magnificent temple. And how shocked he must be and, and everyone else to hear Jesus' reply. You see these great buildings? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to them. In about 40 years, he doesn't say that, but we know. In 40 years, the Romans are going to come lay siege to Jerusalem and pulverize the temple. You see, this disciple had it wrong. And so when we ask what's the big deal about the temple, we're going to talk later about how beautiful the temple was and how impressive and how amazing and how you, us, as modern Americans, we have never seen a temple. We've never seen a building this beautiful. We've never seen anything as beautiful as this temple. The disciple had it wrong. What's the big deal about the temple? The big deal about the temple is stones. The big deal about the temple is what lays beyond the stones. Behind those stones is the manifest presence of God. What does that mean? Well, if, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard this term. Omnipresence of God. Have you heard that term? The omnipresence of God. The omnipresence of God means God is everywhere. He's everywhere. This is why when we did Vacation Bible School, this is why we things like we could pray anywhere, at any time, and in any place, because God is anywhere. Are you watching? What did I tell you in the beginning about being a How's this? All right. The omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. That's why we can pray to him in your basement. You can pray to him at church. You can pray to him in the woods. You can, you can talk to God anywhere, anytime, because he is everywhere. He's omnipresent. But that's different than his manifest presence. His manifest presence 
is saying, God is right there. You see the difference? Omnipresence of God says God is everywhere. That's like the sunlight. God's manifest presence is being able to say, he is there. If omnipresence is sunlight, his manifest presence is a laser beam. God is there. God is here. So that's why the temple is a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Why is the manifest presence of God a big deal? Because, please hear me really clearly, because the manifest presence of God is everything you will ever want or need. The manifest presence of God is everything you will ever want or need. Nothing bad ever happens in the manifest presence of God. Psalm 97 says this, Clouds and thick darkness surround him as at Sinai. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Can you imagine the safety that comes from the manifest presence of God? I'd like to think my kids feel safe in my presence. You know, they watch a scary part of a movie, they'll come run and jump in my arms. That kind of feeling. Dad's big. Dad's kind of big. And dad picks up things that are really heavy. So he's strong. Dad must be able to protect me from all kinds of things. Is that true? If that's true, their feelings for me, think about how we should feel in the presence of the Almighty God. Nothing's going to touch me in the presence of my Father. True freedom is found in the manifest presence of God. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Real rest is found only in the manifest presence of God. Anyone else been really tired this last year and a half? Yeah. Exodus thirty-three fourteen, And he said, my presence shall go with you. My manifest presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. In the manifest presence of God, there is earth-shattering power. Psalm 97. Think how cool this verse is. You ready? Listen to this. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. Can anything stop God from doing what he wants to do? Can anything stop God from blessing his people the way he wants to in his presence? No. And then here might be the best one. Are we ready for the best one? Psalm 1611, in the eternal and overwhelming joy and pleasure is found in the manifest presence of God. Listen to this. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Isn't that amazing? Listen, please understand, God is for your joy. Are you with me? If you don't understand that, you're missing a huge part of the gospel. God is for your joy and your pleasure. The problem is you can't find it anywhere else. You can only find it in the manifest presence of God. Everything else is counterfeit. And so to stand in the presence of God is to experience absolute safety, total freedom, life-shaping beauty, true and total spiritual, emotional, and physical rest, full and never-ending joy and pleasure delivered to you through power that melts mountains. That's what it means to be in the presence of God. 
That's a lot. That's a mouthful. Can you imagine that? No, we can't imagine that. You know how we can't imagine that? Paul describes it this way. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined is what God has prepared for those who love him. That good news? So is there anything more valuable than being in the presence of God? No. And so what was the temple? The temple in Jerusalem is where we could say, God is right there. So what does that mean for Jesus to come and say, that temple beyond those stones holds the manifest presence of God and it's going to be pulverized. To really understand the depths of this, we need to understand the history of God is right there. Our first experience of the manifest presence of God, the first experience of God is right there, is in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and he created Eve and they enjoyed the manifest presence of God. But then Genesis 3.8 tells us this, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And because of their sin, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why are things the way that they are? Why do we die? Why do we sin? Why do we suffer? Why do we experience pain? Why do we experience hate? Why do we experience all these things? We experience all these things because our great, 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 great grandmother and grandfather thought the fruit of the tree was better than the manifest presence of God. This is the essence of sin. Sin is not just some checklist that we fall short of. No, sin, the essence of sin is this. It is, when I sin, it is me stupidly thinking that God is not enough. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, God removed his manifest presence from the earth. And what took its place, what what the consequences of saying that God is not enough, the consequences were a curse, pain, toil, suffering, and death. And hell is going to be terrible for lots of reasons. We think about hell and it's described as a never-ending fire, and that is true. But what makes hell, hell, is that God's manifest presence is never there. Everything that God brings us in his manifest presence is gone from hell. The safety, the freedom, the joy, the pleasures, the beauty, everything we find in the manifest presence of God is removed. Hell is a place where we declare forever, I don't want God. And we get that. Isaiah 59 says it this way. Adam and Eve knows this all too well. You and I in our sin know this all too well. We'll explain in a moment. Israel, the people of Israel know this all too well. Isaiah 59, but your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's low point. That's... Can you get lower than that? Can you get more treasonous? Think about Adam and Eve's treason. 
that we have joined into. Think about this. God creates them, gives them this perfect world, his manifest presence. There's nothing bad or wrong with this place. No pain, no suffering. And Adam and Eve look at God and they say, you are not enough for me. Can you imagine a greater treason than that? But here's what we find about God right out of the beginning of the book, right out of the beginning of our history. We find that God is gracious towards sinners. In God's grace, he is willing to forgive sinners and bring them into his presence again. God's mercy is new towards sinners. And we see Adam and Eve had babies who had babies who had babies who had babies who became slaves in Egypt. And God, through Moses, brings Adam and Eve's offspring out of slavery. And he establishes his relationship with them. And not just his relationship, but he brings back his manifest presence. Moses takes God's people out of slavery, brings them to Sinai, this mountain where they meet God. They see his manifest presence. And we need to get, we need to feel this, smell this, taste the, the depth of God's manifest presence here. Get the whole picture. This is, this is Exodus 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you. I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. This is the God whose presence melt mountains. Then Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now listen, what we're about, that's different than Adam and Eve. And what's the difference between Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden and the people of Israel trembling at the sight of God? What's the difference? The people, Adam and Eve, were sinless when they walked in the garden. These people in front of the mountain are like you and me, sinful. We see, we feel that it is dangerous for a sinner to be in the presence of God. But God in his grace and his mercy descend and his manifest presence is back with us. And then we see, after, the, after Sinai, we see God tell the people, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. And they built the tabernacle. And the, the cloud of God came down and filled the tabernacle. The presence of God filled the tabernacle. And as these ex-slaves, as Israel wandered the desert toward the promised land that God has for them to be the nation, to be the light to the nations... When the cloud left the tent, they followed. When the cloud came down, they stayed. And then we see them take over the land. They're in the land of milk and honey, the land promised by God. And then we see King Solomon builds this glorious temple. 30,000 laborers built Solomon's temple for the Lord. And they knew that this place was to be so holy that the temple was to be built without the noise of hammers, axes, or any tools. Everything had to be prepared out of earshot because this is the holy place of God. God's manifest presence is going to be here. We don't want to pollute the place even with the sound of hammers. 
And in 1 Kings 8, when the temple is being dedicated, we get this. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? God is right there. We're done, right? We're done. We went from the garden, and yeah, we blew it, but now we're back, and we've got this temple, and God's presence is in there. This must certainly mean that everything's going to get better and better and better, and there'll be no problems. But yet again, God's people say God's manifest presence is not enough. And they worship other gods. And they abuse one another. And what they find is what Adam and Eve found and what we always find in our sinfulness. What they find when we declare that God's presence in our life is not enough. When we declare that, the wicked, traitorous words that those are, when we declare that, what we find is what they have found. And what humanity has found all throughout our history. We find a curse, suffering, toil, and death. And due to Israel's disobedience, the temple was destroyed by Babylon in 586 BC. And the echoes of Isaiah, but your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. But if you've been paying attention, what do we see happens after that? We see God's grace and his mercy is renewed and God brings his people back to the land and they build a new temple. A new temple. And we hear about this new temple in Zechariah 1. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. What good news? How gracious is God? We've done it again. And his mercy and grace is renewed. God loves sinners, doesn't he? His mercy and grace are new for sinners. Are you a sinner? Amen. That kid gets it. Some of you adults need to get on board. Yeah, but God's mercy and his grace are new for you, sinner. And we see, it's called Zerubbabel's temple, and it was a little bitty guy compared to Solomon's temple. But then Herod comes in 20 B.C., 20 years before Jesus was born. He says, I'm going to make a real temple. And he comes through, and he, quote-unquote, reverently replaces this temple. And it's twice the size of Solomon's temple. It's 1,000 feet by 1,600 feet. To give you an idea, Arrowhead Stadium is 800 feet by 800 feet. And Herod is building this temple in Jesus' life. And the Jews absolutely gloried in this temple. In fact, this temple was so precious to them that it became, Judaism became synonymous with the temple. They came together, which you couldn't have Judaism without the temple. Jewish people from all over the world were invested in this temple. They sent gold and gold and gold. They sent so much gold that as they were building this huge temple, they had too much gold. And so what are we going to do? We're going to melt the gold down and we're going to create a vine of gold with, with golden leaves that stretch all over the walls. And when we get more gold in that we can't use, we'll just make more leaves and more vines. And so intertwined, snaking through was the gold from all over the world. And these stones that the disciple is talking about. Jesus, look at those wonderful stones. Those stones were massive. Some of those stones weighed a million pounds. Those stones would start right here and go to the second to last row and 12 feet high. And they were all ornate. They would carve biblical images and words into all these stones. And every single stone was, was plated with gold. 
And it was so beautiful that the rabbis would say, he who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his life. It was the wonder of the ancient world. Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, would say this, now the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either man's minds or their eyes, for it was covered all over with plates of gold. And get a load of this. So much gold that at the first rising of the sun, it reflected back a fiery splendor. In the morning, you couldn't even look at it. And those who were far off would see the temple as a mountain white with snow. that beautiful? We must look at that temple and say, there is God. And it must have looked to them like nothing can destroy or stop this temple. It must have looked like to them like finally we figured it out. Those bozos back there in the Garden of Eden, they couldn't figure it out. Those bozos out uh, hundreds of years ago, our ancestors couldn't figure it out, but we've got it. Look at this temple. Nothing could stop this temple. Nothing can get between us and the presence of God. God. And then Jesus shows up. And he's done things like raise the dead, give sight to the blind, feed 5,000 men and their families out of his hands. They've done things like this. And Jesus comes in and he starts saying, the temple is not what it must be. What? Jesus, don't you have eyes? Don't you see the, the, the stones? Come on, look at the stones. God's presence is in there. Look what we've done for God's presence. And Jesus shows up and he, he knocks out all the, the big wigs in the temple. Dude, what, are you, what are you doing, man? Yeah, we might have some other stuff wrong, but we've got this right. The manifest presence of God is there and we are doing right. And then Jesus makes a whip and he clears the temple. And Jesus says in 80, 70, in 40 more years, this generation will see the temple and all Jerusalem will be pulverized. Sin brings pain, suffering, death, and toil. Isaiah, but your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. And Jesus is going to call 70 AD for Jerusalem the worst thing that has ever happened on the planet. What must the disciples be thinking? How can this happen again? Can't we ever get it right? This is, the, this is the greatest building the world has ever seen. We can't even get this one right. And what we must read is that we must say, these two small verses, we must go to this place and say, we feel their desperation. We must not be foolish enough to say, well, if I were in their place, I would get it right. I can't get it right either. Can you? Can you earn the manifest presence of God? Are there things in your life, if your house was the house of the living God, his manifest presence, would your life be righteous enough to keep the manifest presence of God in your home? Mine wouldn't. God's presence came in five minutes. Five minutes from then, he'd be gone in my house. So we need a better temple.
I'm not talking bigger and better. I'm talking we need something completely different. And not just the temple. So I don't care what you build. I don't care how much gold is on there. I'm going to mess it up. I don't just need a better temple. I need a new heart to love God. And is God even going to want me? If I'm at Sinai and the the thunder and the lightning and the trumpet and the cloud and the fire are there, am I going to be brave enough to walk up that mountain? No, that's the God whose presence melts mountains. What is he going to do to a sinner like me? I need a better way into the presence of God. We need a way to find, to have the manifest presence of God and be in his presence forever. And now if you've been paying attention, do you think God has been gracious, merciful, and forgiving so far? You ain't seen nothing yet. This guy Jesus shows up. And he is called Emmanuel which means God with us. And he starts doing things that only God can do. He starts forgiving sins. Only God can do that. He starts healing the sick. He starts raising the dead. And he has come and cleansed his house. And he has come and condemned his house. Who can do that? And then we have Jesus making statements like these. He's going to make this statement. Mark's going to record him. Further on in 14, but John, John, uh, in John's gospel, he starts right off with this in chapter 2. After Jesus cleanses the temple, on account of this, the Jews demanded, what sign can you show to prove your authority to do these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. But they were confused, and they said, it's just, this temple took us 46 years to build, and you are going to raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the manifest presence of God. He says, I and the, and the Father are one. What does that mean? First of all, what does this mean about, about the God of sinners? We couldn't do it ourselves. We couldn't build a better temple. We couldn't build a nice enough temple. So he came to do the job himself for you. What's this say about Jesus? The manifest presence of God. What's this say about him? He is our safety. Jesus says, and this is the will of God, the Father who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me. Jesus is our freedom. Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. He is our rest. Are you weary? Are you weary of trying to be good enough to be into the manifest presence of God? Have you bought into the lie that you are good enough or you can be good enough? And isn't that a heavy burden? Jesus looks at you and he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. manifest presence of God is where we find joy. And I always get in a little bit of trouble when I say this. Jesus is our joy, and we see that in his first miracle. He's at a wedding, and all the wine is gone, and wine symbolizes in Scripture. Wine symbolizes joy and happiness. So what does it say for the wedding that all the wine is gone? It's sad. Jesus' mom comes and she's helping. She said, Jesus, you got to do something. All the wine is gone. And we, she brings these big jugs that were filled. He said, fill them with water. Water is just plain boring. That's not joyful. And so Jesus fills the jugs with wine. And what does the scripture say? He fills them to the brim. What are we to have from that? Jesus' joy in our lives will fill us to the brim. 
That's the joy that Christ brings. Jesus is the manifest presence of God. But not only that, Jesus is the way into the manifest presence of God forever. Hebrews 10 tells us this. He says, therefore, brothers, since we now have confidence to enter into the temple, the holy places, by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the temple curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the, high, the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus came, and all that sin that Isaiah tells separates me from God. Jesus came, and he took that sin off of believers, and he put it on himself, and he was crucified to the cross. And Hebrews tells us that the, the thick temple curtain that stood between the manifest presence of God and everyone else. Hebrews echoes the Gospels that when Jesus died, that temple was torn from, that, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And Hebrews says, now our hearts have been cleaned through the cross of Christ and now we can enter boldly into the manifest presence of God. No more standing at the bottom of Sinai in fear we can now enter boldly, not because of the goodness of my own heart, not because of my own righteousness or I figured it out or I've built a better temple, not because of any of that, but because Jesus has done it. And now for all who call upon his name, the manifest presence of God is yours. And finally, we need a better temple. Jesus came, God's manifest presence on the earth. Jesus died on the cross so that all those who have faith in him will have God's manifest presence to enjoy forever. And then Jesus left. The manifest presence of God was gone. But you know what Jesus says when he's leaving? His disciples are, are real. They'd be like me. Jesus, where are you going? I don't know what to do. How, how do I, what, what do I do? Jesus says, do not fear. It's better for, me that I, it's better for you that I go because I'm going to send to you God, the Holy Spirit. And so now, where is the manifest presence of God now? I'm looking at it. You are the manifest presence of God. Christian, Jesus has sent God, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in you like God dwelled in the tabernacle. You are the manifest presence of God. Remember when we said, I just keep messing it up. My sins keep separating me. God said, you cannot do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the Holy Spirit in you so that he will help you obey. You've been justified by the cross and you have been filled with the Holy Spirit so that you will begin to find God beautiful and joyous. That you'll begin to learn the dance of saying, no, sin is worthless to me. I've got Jesus. I've got God. I no longer want to put sin in front of Jesus. Start to learn that dance. Learn that battle. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your body is a what? Temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God. That's you, Christian. So what does that mean, church? What does that mean for Trinity Baptist Church? Our job is what the temple's job was, to facilitate the worship of God for the nations, to make faithful followers. That's our job. And so anything that, that causes us to look inward and any, any fights we might have or preferences we might have or fears that might not want us to look outside these walls and declare the presence, that's not being the temple. God 
sees. People see the manifest presence of God through the work of the gospel in the church as proclaimed in the Bible. And so what must we do? What must we do? Hearing this history of the presence of God, seeing that Jesus is the manifest presence of God, the way into the eternal manifest presence of God, and that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. What must we do? Non-believers, all temples must fall. There is only one way to God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Are you with me? There is no other temple. Your righteousness, your goodness, your niceness is not a temple. You're not a nice enough guy. You're not a nice enough gal. Your temple is worthless. There's only one temple. That temple must fall. Are you, do you think it's karma? That if you have good enough works that outweigh your bad, then God will let you in? That temple must fall. There's no other name. There's no other action. There's no other building. There's no other religion that brings us into the manifest presence of God. It is only through Jesus Christ. Christian, what must we do? Since sin is foolishly seeking elsewhere what only God's manifest presence can give. Since sin is saying, I want this and not God. We will never defeat sin by fighting it alone. Christian, if you're wanting to sin less in your life, it's not going to, working harder is not the answer. What's the answer? Finding Jesus more joyous. Finding Jesus more beautiful. Finding Jesus more powerful. Finding Jesus better than any sin. So how do we fight sin? What gives us the power to fight sin is not working harder or working better or knowing more. It's finding Jesus more beautiful and glorious. So Pray to him, talk with him, love him, gather with his people, read the Bible at home, listen to the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Why? So that you will see Jesus better and better and better. At church, if you ever start hearing me say, we need to just be this way, be better, we try to say, no, no, no. If that's the scope of this pulpit, you need to find another church. What we want to do every day is elevate Jesus higher and higher. And yes, Jesus tells us that there are ways to live that we should live, but our motivation is not to, so we can be good people or try harder or be stronger. Our motivation in that is a better love for Jesus. It's the gospel. And finally, finally, it's a crazy time crazy time. And like I said, I heard this week, this is the end times. And it's really scary. And I don't know in the end time, and nobody does. Maybe, maybe it's next week. Who knows when Jesus is coming back? Who knows when he's going to kick all that off? What must we do with this? We must know where we are going. You ready? If Jesus comes back next week, if you die in a car accident on your way home, no matter what happens to you, Christian, through the work of Jesus, let's talk about where we are going. Revelation 21.1. Revelation is written after the end times, what our eternal life will look like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. We started off in the garden with the presence of God. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christian, fear not. Our destiny is to be in the manifest presence of God forever through the work of Jesus. Is that true for you? Worship team, will you join me? Is that true for you? Are you heading there? Christian, Are you seeking to be more joyful in Christ? Are you seeking to find Jesus even more joyous, even more joy-giving, even more glorious? Is that the purpose for your life? Are you a Christian who's trying to work harder to be better and you feel the sweat, you feel the burden of that? Let Jesus remove that burden. Come, he says. Come to me. My burden is light. I will give you rest. How will he do that? Because we will start finding him more glorious every single day. Is that true for you? Church, as we know that we are the new temple of God, are we fully committed to making faithful followers of Jesus? Do we ever find ourselves saying, hey, this church, we just had a nice renovation. Aren't we done? It's finished. We worked hard on it. We're done, right? We can never be done. Our purpose is to be the temple where people come to worship and know the the joy that we have found in Jesus Christ. Are you a non-believer? Now is the time. Now, today, right now. Now, now, now. Turn from your sin. Follow Jesus. The Bible gives us these things. He said, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trust Jesus today. Would you stand with us and sing together?